The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. I'd say for most of us this this week, if you don't like change, (laughs) it's been a bummer of a week. Because it, it's been changing by the hour as the dominoes just kept falling. And uh, tournaments canceled, seasons canceled, stock market was singing Tom Petty songs, it seemed like, you know, free falling. There's no easy way out. And what goes up must come down. And the coming down is the hardest part. I mean, it's been a rough week. <laughs> a lot of ironies. Just a few ironies that I've kind of noted this week. I've shared a couple of these, but, you know, they tell us, like, you realize that the, the worst thing that, that carries all the germs is actually your, your phone. And so you need to be cleaning your phone, you know, because you're just carrying around all these germs. And then they tell you, whatever you do, don't touch your face. And you're thinking, okay, okay, I won't touch my face. I won't touch my face. And then my phone rings, and I put all the germs right on my face. And we're spreading this thing. Then another irony is we closed everything. We closed the schools, universities, libraries, sporting events, anywhere that a crowd could gather so that we could bring them all together to the grocery store at one time. <laughs> and, and literally, there were well over the 250 threshold at Trader Joe's and Sam's Club and Walmart and Costco's across the country. And we've created something. And we're going to know in about five to seven days of the fallout of everybody going to the grocery store on Friday. Another irony, which I find really thankful for, is our local governments, our officials, everyone from the top down, they're all speaking the same language, which is we need to take care to protect the elderly, protect the vulnerable, those who are at risk, I was just sharing with my neighbor yesterday. I said, isn't this wonderful? Because it's so un-Darwinian. This is so not evolutionary. Like if we're truly living out Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, we say, good riddance, survival of the fittest, let's just let it run, guys. Don't cancel anything. The strong are going to get stronger. But we really realize through the middle of this that we're really not at core in our heart of hearts. We're really not evolutionists. We're really not Darwinian after all. It's been a bad week for Darwinianism. But in the midst of this crazy week, has it also been a week for drawing near to God in the midst of of chaos? I titled this message, The Fear We Need, because I think this is what we all need in the midst of the storms that are going on around us. So let's give attention to Psalm 34. This is David, and we're given a a subtitle, and very few of these psalms give us the subtitles. It says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. He had faked insanity, and now he's in a cave probably, hiding in the Lord while he's hiding in the cave, and he writes this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. They pray for us. Father, we know that the churches are a lot smaller in attendance, but we're praying that a lot more are listening that normally wouldn't listen online. And we pray that all of our hearts would be turned to you and that we would see that you are our maker, that your providential care is over all things and that you lift up our heads to see your goodness, that we would trust you, that we would love you and make much of you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite preachers is Charles Spurgeon. And he has a simple outline in the Treasury of David for this psalm. He says the first ten verses are a hymn, and the rest of the sermon, or the rest of the psalm is a sermon, because basically the second half turns into like a proverb. But we've got a hymn, and then we have a sermon. But consider the context. This is one of these rare uh, psalms, and this is an acrostic psalm. So in Hebrew, this is the uh, Hebrew alphabet going through with the letters, and there's there are about 10 of these in the Psalms. And this one also has a subtitle, Let Us Know When He Wrote It. But David had been anointed by God to become king. But Saul was king. And David was a king in waiting. And David had been used by God, as you remember the great story of the Bible. One of the great stories is when he defeated Goliath, who was over nine feet tall. What an amazing story. And we're told that David actually ran to the battle to meet Goliath without any armor, without any sword, without any armor bearer. And we don't even see that he had a shield. He runs to the battle and all he has is five stones and a slingshot and he runs to the battle. I think we would have been running the other way. Yet the Lord gave him the victory as Goliath was mocking the Lord, making fun of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And the writer of 1 Samuel makes it clear to us several times that David killed Goliath with no sword. David took Goliath's own sword and he cut his head off. And with that, the Philistine army fled and a great victory was won that day for Israel. 
Well, it's a great story. And it led to this top 40 single that was sung, not by Taylor Swift, but by all the women who came out of all the cities of Israel, we are told in the next chapter. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the city, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another, and here was their top 40 hit. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul didn't like that song. He didn't like the song because of the lyrics. You remember, he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit rushed from God, rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house why Saul or David was just playing the lyre as he did day by day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled the spear, and he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice, we're told, and we're told why Saul was trying to kill him. It's actually a surprising verse in 1 Samuel 18, 12. This is what the Bible says. Saul was afraid of David, not the other way around. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So the reason he wanted to kill him is because he was afraid of him. So as we fast forward now a few chapters into the story, we're speeding up and we're actually getting to the context now of Psalm 34. David is on the run from Saul, literally. And he has to flee for his life. And here David is like the large trophy big buck, and it's the first day of hunting season, okay? That's what David feels like. He's being literally hunted by the king of Israel who has plenty of armies, plenty of resources to help him do his hunting. David is, is the prey, and he flees to Nob and to Abimelech, the priest. And David said to Abimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If, you take, if you'll take it, take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the commentators talk about this was how the, how the gold had become dim at this point in David's life. That he's now, the, the very one who struck down Saul without a sword is now running for his life. And now he's clinging to Goliath's sword and he's saying there's none like it. He's trusting in this sword and he's fleeing. And when you're on the run, sometimes you don't think very clearly. Well, David, let's think about this. David flees now to the king of Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, and he's got Goliath's hometown weapon, his sword, and he's trying to be incognito. How's that going to go? How's that working for you, David? Of course, he's discovered, and Saul then has to pretend insanity. And we're told he made marks on the door of the gate, and he let his spit run down his beard. And the plan works. And the king says, do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? And so David was able to depart and escape to the cave of Adullam. And there hiding in the cave is a good sanctified guess is where David actually penned this psalm. And what we have is a personal testimony. 
This hymn, the first 10 verses, it's a psalm of deliverance, but it's a personal testimony because David had a big problem like you and I do. He was afraid. I mean, imagine having the two most powerful people on the planet trying to kill you. You've got King Saul, and now you've got the King of Gath. The one is out to kill me, and the other has just discovered who I am, and they both want me dead. Yikes! And so what do you do? You do what David did. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Have you done that in the midst of your fears? What are you afraid of this morning? Be honest with yourself. Fear reigns so much of the time. It's like a hundred pound crown on our head. Fear reigns. <laughs> and when fear's on the throne, there's no faith expressing itself in love. Rather, fear will express itself in frustration and anger. And isn't it great to see when others are seeking the Lord and, they find, and it says they become radiant? Well, it's amazing what a crisis will do because crises actually teach us how to pray. They teach us, they, they also show us who we really are. What does David say about himself in verse 6? I mean, he's the anointed king of Israel. I mean, he's the big, he's the big dog in waiting. How does he describe himself in verse 6? Look at your Bible. What does it say? This poor man, he's just a poor man. He knows now who he is, that he has no resources but God to deliver him. And isn't this where we begin to grow? And isn't this where we begin in the Christian life? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here is David crying out that he's a poor man. He knows really who he is. He's just a man. I love this song by Aubrey Assad. You can look it up on YouTube. It's called I Shall Not Want. And what she's describing in this song is so much of fear. She talks about from the fear of having nothing. Deliver me, O oh God, from a need to be understood, a need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O oh God. Deliver me, and I shall not want. I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. From the fear of serving others, from the fear of death or trial, from the fear of humility. Deliver me, O oh God, deliver me, and I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. You see, David sought the Lord, verse 4. He looked to him, verse 5. Verse 6, he cried to him. And, and then he tasted for himself that the Lord is good. So often there has to be a savoring before there's a seeing. You have to taste before you can see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to... The idea is not literally tasting, but the idea is you're marinating, you're soaking, you're meditating, you're reflecting, you're enjoying God. And David looked to the Lord, and then we see what happens. As the Lord delivered him from all his fear, and then it says in verse 5 that those who look to him are radiant. They're experiencing the blessing of God. The, the ironic blessing, the very first blessing that's given in the Bible, you remember... In number six, it says that Aaron was taught to say to the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, 
That's what happened to David. Now the countenance has come upon him and now he has the shalom and he's raiding, he's experiencing this. And when we open our hearts and our souls to, re, to receive his love, to seek his face, our countenance begins to change. And I've seen this many times. Many times I have been called upon or you go to visit somebody in the hospital or in hospice and you're afraid because you know you're bringing a word to them. And you get there and they're bringing a word to you. Evie, Evie Smith in her last days, she wrote out the whole service. She knew where she was going and she still had the Evie smile that was radiant. How many times have I gone to visit Margaret Davis and left thinking, who is, who is what a bless, how blessed am I to get to know this saint? This woman who's been in the same room for over, like, four, over five, I think it's like five years now. She just says, well, you know where I'll be <laughs> if you come back to see me, because she never leaves the room. And she's just accepted her lot, and she loves the Lord, and she ministers to all these people. Corey Timboom, survivor of the Holocaust, amazing woman. She had that great quote that's in your sent it out with the email announcements. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Where are you looking this morning? Where are you looking? Because look at David. Look what he does. Verse 1, we see who does the praising. David does. I will do it. It's first person. Then we see who David's praising. The end of verse 1. He's praising the Lord. And then we see when David praises, it's continually now. At the end of verse 1. And then we see how David praises the Lord. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. What do you boast in? Because we boast all the time. We boast about great deals, great products, great movies, great songs, great books, great athletes. Boasting is, is normal. We boast in the Lord. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. It's apropos from the reflection on the Psalms. He said, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, or even for some time after, I found a stumbling block in the demand that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I've never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, pl players praising their favorite game. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Men spontaneously praise whatever they value so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising. And that's what David does in verse 3. Let's magnify the Lord together. Let us. And, and, and so Lewis is saying, this is what people do. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? He said, indeed, we can't help it because praise not merely expresses, <coughs> excuse me, but completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. Our expressions of praise are inadequate. But how, if one could really and fully praise things to perfection, then indeed our delight would attain perfect development. To understand what heaven means, we must imagine ourselves in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by the delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves, 
flows from us incessantly, again, an effortless and perfect expression, our joy no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. And on he goes. The idea is that we find our delight in him. And what we see in this psalm is that David began with fear, but it was replaced by God when he sought him. When he began to taste and see that the Lord is good, David discovered a better fear. It's the one fear we really need. And that's the title of the message. It's the fear that trumps all other fears. It's the fear that ends all fears. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. If you look at verse 7, and then verse 9 and then verse 11, we're told three times about the fear of the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. There's a promise. And then in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not to fear him and shun him, as Matthew Henry says. It's to fear him and seek him. Fearing the Lord is this reverential awe that moves us to lovingly obey and trust God. We all probably know and have had an experience where we've had a teacher that we really liked and that we revered to some degree, and we naturally wanted to do well in this teacher's class because we really respected the teacher. And this teacher would bring out the best in you, and you'd want to please the teacher. Well, David discovered something much better than just a teacher. He discovered God is the one that he really loves, and he really wants to please and live for him when he's captivated by him. This reverence for God grows and as his reverence for God grows, his fears shrink. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he says, if you've ever walked among giant redwoods, you'll never be overwhelmed again by the size of a dogwood tree. If you've been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you've been in the presence of Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. You see, do you fear him? I came across an interesting story this week that uh, Tim Keller tells in his, one of his books, this is called on, on Death, actually. And he tells a story, I've heard him tell this a couple times, but Addison Leach, who was actually married to Elizabeth Elliot, I think it was second husband, um, he was speaking at a mission conference, and these two young women had heard Addison Leach preach, and they decided they wanted to give their lives to missionary servants to service, but both sets of parents were really upset with Dr. Leach. And they felt that their, their children would be filled with religious fanaticism. So they said, you know, there's no security in being a missionary. The pay is low. The living situation may be dangerous. We've tried talking to our daughters. They need to get a job and a career, maybe get a master's degree or something so they can have some security before they go off and do this missionary thing. And this is what Dr. Leach told them. You want them to have some security. We're on a little ball of rock called Earth. And we're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. Someday a trap door is going to open up under, under every single one of us and we'll fall through it and either there'll be millions and millions of miles of nothing or else there'll be the everlasting arms of God and you want them to get a master's degree to give them a little bit of certainty? And we're worried about coronavirus. We're going through space right now about 35,000 miles an hour. We're just this little ball in space and God is holding us 
and controlling everything. There's no ma maverick germ on the planet. He's over everything. And so we can trust him. And so David is saying, look at my example, what I've learned, and then he wants to give instruction. He's going to take this right out of the ethereal and give some practical instruction on the good life. So that's the second half of the psalm. Look, look, keep looking, because he says, come and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And here's what it is. It's real practical stuff. Verse 13 and 14, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I mean, that's what we're to do. That sounds like you're just like you're reading Proverbs chapter 3. And then he says the reason why. This is what you're to do now. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And the idea of the righteous in the Psalms isn't someone who's perfect. It's someone who's seeking the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who are evil to cut the memory of them from the earth. You see, God has some wonderful promises here for us. And then he goes on and he's, you know, not only does his, his ears and his eyes are towards us, he loves us, he cares for us. Look at verses 17 to 20. These are some wonderfully packed promises. Who is God near and who does God save? He's near to the brokenhearted. And literally in Hebrew, it's brokenhearted. <laughs> it literally, it's, and there are a lot of things to be brokenhearted about, is there not, in this life? From grief, sorrow, bereavement, sin, failure, disappointment, loss, loneliness, just to name a few. And every single one of these, Jesus experienced. He even took our sin, even though he had none. He experienced brokenhearted. Psalm 69 talks about a broken heart on the cross. The Lord is near. He's near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. And verse 19 has these two promises for us. We like the second half and not the first. The first promise is many are the afflictions of the, of the righteous. And the second is, is that he delivers us out of them all. We like B, not A. But A is true just as much as B. Just because you have God or you're a Christian doesn't mean that everything's going to be rosy. It might be rosy, but there are going to be a lot of thorns with those roses. You see, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Through many trials we enter the kingdom of God, and in this life you will have tribulation. We're, what were we expecting this past week? We were expecting everything to be normal. But so much of life isn't normal. And yet the Lord delivers his people out of them all. And not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that this very passage is quoted about Jesus. And it, we're told in the Gospel of John, verse chapter 19, that, the, that it was the day of preparation and the bodies weren't to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, and so the Jews asked Pilate that the legs would be broken on these three guys on the cross. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the, and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. And he who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth. This is, God, this is John 19, 35, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers them out of them all. What's interesting is you go through this psalm and you realize that some of the things that we ultimately where this psalm is going is beyond death. He's talking about being redeemed and not being condemned. He's talking about standing before God and being redeemed and not condemned. And the reason that that will not happen for us, that trust in Jesus, is because Jesus was right here on a cross. He was condemned. He took our sin. He became a, He took the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and by his shedding of blood. That's how our sins are forgiven. He died in our place for our sin. So that when we put our trust in him, this would never happen to us. That we are redeemed, bought back by his blood, accepted and not condemned. William Plummer, one of the good commentators on the Psalms. He says, among all the redeemed in glory, this is the saints now in heaven, there's not one who looks back and sees on earth that there was a mistake in the divine conduct toward him. God does all things well. There's not one person in heaven who ever looks down and says, you know, I wish the Lord hadn't brought that into my life. There's not one person in heaven that does that because heaven makes amends for all. God knows what he's doing. And often the very things that make us weak, like what happened to David, were the very things that turned him and caused him to turn back to the Lord. Listen to what John Calvin says about Psalm 34, 19. It's a little bit of a long quote. Listen carefully. How can it be that God has a care about the righteous who are continually harassed with so many calamities and trials? For what purpose does the protection of God serve unless those who are peaceably inclined enjoy peace and repose? And what is more unreasonable than that those who cause trouble to no one should themselves be tormented and afflicted in, a, in all varieties of ways? And then he answers the question. That therefore the temptations by which we are continually assailed may not shake our belief in the providence of God. We ought to remember this lesson of instruction that although God governs the righteous and provides for their safety, they are yet subject and exposed to many miseries that being tested by such trials that they may give evidence of their invin invincible constancy and experience so much the more that God is their deliverer. If they were exempted from every kind of trial, their faith would languish. They would cease to call upon God, and their piety would remain hidden and unknown. But God didn't want any of those three things to happen. He wanted your faith to grow. He wanted you to call upon Him, and He wanted others to see your piety. And so what does He give you? The gift of a thorn, of affliction. And Jesus took more than a thorn. He took thorns. He took a spear. He did this so that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the, of, of the Spirit of life has now set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And so then the end of Romans 8 answers this question, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or coronavirus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I say that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, we don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't even know what we're doing next Sunday as a church. We don't even know if we're having Sunday school. We don't even know if we're having church. We, we don't know a lot of things. There's a lot that you don't know what's going to happen in the next year in your life. I mean, right now, everything is kind of... But you know this is true. And you can rest in this. There's a little story that I came across this week where an army chaplain was covering a frightened soldier before a battle. And he told this frightened soldier, if you live, Jesus will be with you. But if you die, you'll be with him. Either way, he has you. And is that not true of each of us? That's the fear we need. And the other fears shrink. He has me. I'm with him either way. This is great news. Let us press on. Let me pray for us. Lord, you have given us the hope that we need so that we can go and love others, even be risky in our, our love, given us faith. And we just pray that our hope would swell that it would change our countenance, that we would be radiant people, that we would be um, a people that are not overrun and burdened by fear. Lord, we give you our fears. We think of David who said, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. We know fears will come, but we know that you are greater. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.